it's definitely panning out that people do not want to spend time in this kind of world that Meta has concocted. Obviously, this is just the tip of the iceberg and it's going to become way better. I mean, it does. They still don't even have legs, right? You don't even. It's like there's a controversy around the legs. Yeah. Well, it depends on whether you mean metaphorically, whether this has legs or whether the legs. No, like literally, (laughs) do you have legs in it or are you just like a floating Uh, top hat? Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, we've been doing this show for about a year now, and I think this is the first time we ever had to move or cancel a show because of illness. I could not get out of yeah. bed yesterday, so I want to apologize to our audience, but we're doing a special Wednesday episode today uh, to make up for yesterday's lost episode. You feeling better? I'm feeling a bit better, yeah. And, you know, it's funny... Uh, for our listeners who want to peek behind the, the curtains a little bit, we we just started to do the recording a couple, like, you know, 15, 20 minutes ago at my apartment, which is just down the street from our office. And there's just, helpfully, there was a jackhammer that just started going right as we were starting to record. <laughs> so I had to walk to the office anyway. So I'm on our, we have a, a secret recording studio on a different floor. So I, I can record without having to, uh, to run into any of our staff members and, and give them wherever the hell it is I have right now. And I am at my dad's house right now, so there will almost definitely be some dog noises in the background. So um, we're, we're, we're being very real on this episode, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yesterday, instead of watching Stranger Things or something, I was actually listening to the Supreme Court oral arguments mm-hmm. from earlier this week. Uh, most of our listeners probably at this point have listened to our Sunday episode of Regressives where we did about an hour on the affirmative action cases before the court. And I thought it was really fascinating. Like these these oral arguments were about what we would have expected them to be. And there were a lot of callbacks to our episode actually. So Gorsuch in the oral arguments asked about the holistic admissions process at Harvard and how it was used in the 20s against Jews, which is something that we talked about on our podcast. Thomas was asking questions about the diversity rationale and basically trying to pin down Harvard and the Biden administration on what do we mean by diversity? What kind of goals do we have? Which is something that Ted Shaw kind of pointed at in our podcast episode. There was just one moment after another that just kind of hit the notes that we expected them to hit. And I think at the end, I think all credible observers seem to, to agree that affirmative action is on its last legs and that when the court, you know, hands down its decision in June, that'll be it. There's kind of a spectrum on where it could come out in the end, though, right? Like it could just be about admissions in college or it could span a much larger civil rights outcome in the end, right? Yeah, I think this could also apply, you know, K-12 is something we talked a little bit about on our podcast this weekend. I think that there's, whether it's the Thomas Jefferson magnet admissions process in Virginia or Stuyvesant in New York or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the many magnet school debates that are happening around the country where you have something very similar happening to what Harvard did against Asian Americans that allegedly is that these, these schools that feel that they have quote unquote overrepresentation of Asian Americans are then using other means to try to dilute the Asian American population and increase the participation of other minorities that are underrepresented. This case definitely feels to me like it's going to be relevant for those cases. But, you know, in the end, I was just a little bit perturbed by the, the coverage of my friends in the progressive media here. Like there was one article after another in the lead up to these oral arguments that did not mention Asian Americans. So Ruth mm-hmm. Marcus in the Washington Post, Greenhouse in the New York Times, they're writing these full on articles talking about this case before the Supreme Court and not even mentioning the aggrieved party here, which is the Asian American population, which is how this case even started in the first place. So that was frustrating and I think just indicative of I, if, if my theory of this case, which is Harvard is the real winner here because this should have been about their discrimination, but they turned themselves into the heroes here and you know painted themselves as defenders of affirmative action, which is kind of an accidental position that they've taken really just to try to deflect attention from their own discriminatory practices. Moving along with some announcements here, um, just a reminder that we do have a voicemail line that's open right now. Our phone number is 321-200-0570. We've been getting a few calls from you guys and um, 
give us some questions, some topic suggestions. Tell us why you love the show. Tell us why you're fed up with the the media landscape, whatever. Whatever floats your boat, we're here. We want to hear from you. So, yeah, give us a call. Uh, we also have an episode of The Citizen Stewart Show, which dropped yesterday. This is our show uh, with Chris Stewart, uh, and I co-pilot with him. I'm kind of like his Robin, or what is her name, Monica Padman, to um, Dax. I just get on the show and try to give him a hard time. And we talk about only education topics for the most part. And this this week, we talk about the school closure debate and what we know about the academic learning losses from students from the school closures. We look at certain states that are, you know, showing some promising gains in these past few years, like Mississippi. And we also talk a little pop culture by doing a review of Abbott Elementary. And one last announcement on the top. Um, if you or someone you know is a Spanish language speaker, check out our podcast, Pulso Y Pendulo. They're covering the Brazilian election tomorrow. So it should be a really exciting uh, conversation, kind of similar dynamics of a cross-ideological conversation about such a, a consequential topic. So make sure to check that out if you can. Great. Well, we have a couple of hot topics to discuss uh, today, Ricky. We're going to talk about metaverse in trouble. Uh, is this just some growing pains or you know, are they really dead in the water? And what does that mean for the company as a whole? Uh, we're also, we have a, a, an interview with two veteran reporters from Arizona about the state's gubernatorial and Senate elections. But let's start with Twitter and Elon Musk, a topic that never seems to go away. We have a lot happening in that company. I, I think we're just trying to track it all right now, as I imagine many mm -hmm. of our listeners are. Ricky, you know, Elon seems to have been fairly prolific over the weekend. Yeah, I don't know. I'm enjoying this news cycle here. Um, it's very chaotic. It's um, it's very democratic. He's doing all these Twitter polls and figuring out what people want. And I think you it's, enjoy um, the chaos. I love the chaos. It's great. Chief Twit. I'm a fan. Um, but he's you know, he's walking in with a sink for some reason. He's uh, he's firing people who some of whom I've had major problems with the ways that they've engaged with free speech and their responsibility to be a platform for expression for millions of people. Um, he's rolling out plans to like revamp Vine, which I love. I feel like that's the best possible solution to the TikTok issue with China right now. I don't, it's it's fun. It's I, the the um, the Pelosi conspiracy theories less fun. I'm not as excited about that. I, to be clear, I'm not excited about that at all. That was definitely irresponsible. But the other stuff, I'm like, this is kind of cool. Like, there's finally a social media platform where somebody's in charge and they're actually talking to people and they're not completely opaque. And like, yeah, it's kind of messy, but it's also kind of interesting. And some of his ideas, I think maybe they, they will be seen through and others won't. But it's cool to see people actually being able to have some degree of input into what happens on such a consequential platform. Like Twitter. I'm enjoying this Batman villain version of Ricky where you're just chaos is the answer. It's uh, kind of fun. I don't know. It's it's well, there's like secretive chaos that's been going on in the social media world behind closed doors for years, but it's kind of nice to have someone who's just like, Okay, well here's here's what it is. Do you want this? How does this sound? Here's a Twitter poll. I kinda like it. I don't know. Well, let me add some color to some of the things you talk about. Let's dispense quickly with this Pelosi yeah. situation. Musk yeah. uh, tweeted on October thirtieth and later deleted a link to an unfounded conspiracy theory about the attack on Paul Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's husband. What Musk tweeted was, I think, obviously wrong from what I can understand. I have been in a black hole for twenty four hours, but from what I gather by all yeah, accounts, the this link is inaccurate. Was, the link was um I mean there were a lot of like confusing developing aspects of that story, most of which have been clarified. And he um, published a link to an article that kind of ran with things to an irresponsible degree. And I, I believe what he added to that in his own tweet was that there was like a small, a tiny percentage or a small chance that um, things weren't as they seem with this attack, which he later deleted. Not the best way yeah. to start. Definitely not the best way to start, but I feel like he's done so many chaotic things that the news cycle's already for, like just yeah. forgotten. I, I'll just try to put my own meaning on this. He also, he also, um, in response to the New York Times writing something about it and calling it false news, <laughs> Musk shot back, this is fake. And I did not tweet out a link to the New York Times. Like he's kind of trolling the Times, uh, mm -hmm. which 
is it, to me this is what I don't think this is a huge deal, but I do think it is incumbent upon the person who's uh, owns the rails of such an important social media site where he's publicly talking about how he's going to try to you know, make this a space that actually improves our dialogue. And he yeah. also talks about things like cracking down on trolls, which is something he literally talked about this same week. Probably incumbent upon you not to spread information or to be a troll, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would just hope he would act more responsibly here. But there are substantive things happening. Uh, he he apparently has a, a plan to charge uh, anywhere from $5 to $20 per month for verified users. Yeah, I think uh, eight is where he landed ultimately. So that'll be fascinating. Um, he's also uh, made certain, he's pointed in the direction of some kind of content moderation. And he's talked about he how he wants to go after bots and trolls, uh, yeah. but that he's going to embrace a, by all accounts, a more sweeping view of the First Amendment than the previous Twitter leadership has taken. Why don't we stop on that one for a second? Because there's more. You talked about Vine, et cetera. There's, there's a lot that could happen here. Ricky, I know you have a lot to say about this. I am generally confused about where the line even is anymore mm -hmm. for Twitter. I didn't know under the old leadership, but I'm not sure Musk himself even knows where he wants to draw yeah. the line. I mean, I think it's it's a question that inevitably he would have to grapple with. But um, yeah, to your point, he made a content moderation uh, council with diverse viewpoints that according to him. But I would say by and large, I think the most important thing here is he said it's not going to be like a hellscape, which I think is always potentially a danger, especially with bots that can produce a ton of really disturbing content very purposefully sometimes. Um, but I would say the most important thing to do is just to have exceptionally clear rules and rules that are public that when somebody violates one, you, this is the rule that you violated that is very much a part of the contract of being a part of Twitter. And it's not like just quietly censored or you get a an email saying that you've broken some sort of vague rule. Like I think having very clearly defined First Amendment oriented um, restrictions on speech. I, I mean, there's so much wisdom to borrow from our body of law, which has been refined with free speech with very limited exceptions um, over centuries now in the courts. And I think having the most precise, minimal content moderation rules, making sure you're very clear about here's the problem when it happens, eliminates the problem of viewpoint discrimination, which I think is the fundamental issue here is that there was the more the more opaque uh, social media censorship is the more there is reason or um, potential reason to be concerned that viewpoint discrimination is taking place or that it's being applied to certain people and not other people. And so I think just being the most transparent and minimal possible is the way to go. I think it's up to him whether or not he wants to censor slurs. So I think that sort of question is up to him. But by and large, following First Amendment law is the way to go. Greg Lugianoff from FIRE suggests the same thing. And he's a First Amendment lawyer, so he knows a lot more than I do on this front. But um, I would say that's that's the wisdom to draw from for sure. Yeah, I'm. I'm always curious about this this question, and I and I read what Lukianov put together, and you know, one of his principles that Lukianov is suggesting to Musk is is what you talked about in terms of eliminating viewpoint discriminatory policies and practices, and he defines it Lukianov as singling out specific points of view for censorship while leaving others alone, mm -hmm. and where I'm curious here is, well, what is a viewpoint, right? Because race, like racism, is a viewpoint. Uh, like, you know, having malice towards one race over another or believing certain stereotypes about one race versus another is a viewpoint. And yeah, so how do we distinguish that from other types of speech? And and or is it just that Lukianov is like, hey, like actually part of a free speech culture is allowing racism because it's speech. I So one thing that Greg talks about often is the pure informational theory of ideas, which is his sort of sense that the best thing for society is to know if there is grotesque stuff out there because not hearing it does not mean that it goes away and it usually goes underground and it festers in places like Gab um, or or more fringe social media platforms. But I think what he's saying in this specific point is 
viewpoint discriminatory policies as in a certain policy is being wielded against certain people or even just even if it's just the illusion that it is i mean certainly conservatives generally feel that they've been more targeted by social media censorship than others and sometimes rules seem to be violated by one person that doesn't get censored and it does someone else does and so i think eliminating that sort of um, those questions by having very clear standards that are applied uniformly is what Greg is saying there. But I would also say that, yes, being a free speech near absolutist means that you allow even the speech that makes you the most uncomfortable or that's the most reprehensible and you not just allow it, you can counter it and fight back against it and expose it. And actually, I think if they're putting their names in their faces to more disturbing content, I think there's a chance that there's a public shaming sort of aspect here. And rather than just being this anonymous bot in the corner of the internet doing spewing the same things, I'm not sure how for a while Elon was saying that he wanted to make sure that everyone who's on the platform like used a government ID and was like totally verified. I'm not sure if he's Um, gotten rid of that idea. But that could be another way to kind of prevent people from just anonymously spewing stuff, because I think that's probably that shield and cover is. um, I'm definitely on board with that, whether it's a government ID, which creates all sorts of problems, though, outside of the U.S., because I think we often think about the U.S., but like, let's say you want to speak out against. Yeah, I'm not sure that you said government ID specifically, but like that you have to verify that you are you, essentially. Yeah, but that's, that's where this gets tricky is because anonymity we always think about it in the U.S. context. Anonymity allows people to do heinous things uh, on the platform in the U.S. and elsewhere, but it also allows other people to speak out against their government in Saudi Arabia, which has mm-hmm. a stake in Twitter, or yeah. China, which, you know, there's all sorts of questions that have been, I think, revisited in light of this deal. Some of them are old questions, like Saudi Arabia had a stake that they've continued, and I think it, it should warrant some consideration from all of us and i know congress is looking at this just what that means for free speech to have an authoritarian government have Mm -hmm. ownership stake in this company now to be clear this isn't new from what i understand they just continued their stake that they had before but also the fact that you know musk himself does a ton of business in china and you know with this content moderation council which i i think to clarify something you said earlier I don't think he's actually created yet, but he's saying he intends to create. I think he started Uh, forming it. Yeah. Like what what kind of pressure he's going to face from business partners, et cetera. But all that aside, like I have genuine questions about the limits of this this question. Like I appreciate what you're saying about the free speech absolutists. What I wouldn't want to know from from Musk is, is he a free speech absolutist? Because the number, you know, just focus on one heinous example here, the number of trolls uh, apparently using the N-word on Twitter rose by 500% within 12 hours after the Twitter deal was finalized. This is according to the network Contagion Research Institute. LeBron James tweeted about this, uh, saying, I don't know uh, Elon Musk, and to be honest, I could care less about who owns it, but I'll say that if this is true, I hope he and his people take this very seriously because it's scary as fuck. Um, Musk responded to this uh, by basically pointing to the fact that he's going to be going after trolls and bots, Mm -hmm. et cetera. But I'm like, well, trolls, bots, what is, are trolls not protected by speech? Like, isn't trolling speech and no, aren't bots if, also a part of speech? Well, if you're specifically like unleashing a swarm of accounts that we just talked about the potential of having to verify that you are one human. And I think that's what he's referring to. Um, and also, like he he also linked to research that showed that 50,000 of the tweets that contained the N-word came from just 300 accounts, which is an inhuman quantity. I think that um, as long as that research turns out to be accurate, that demonstrates that there is at least someone out there that wants to amplify that sort of language now that Musk has taken over Twitter. I would say, like, obviously, this is horrific. It's not an illegal word, word. So if he does decide to go along First Amendment standards, um, he could choose not to explicitly censor it. I also think that it would be reasonable and um, probably from an advertising standpoint and from just like a social health standpoint, um, probably positive to ban specific words um, if he chooses to do so, but that he should do that pretty quickly, pretty clearly have a list, not have it be this. Um, I think the problem with what happened with with censorship 
on social media over the past several years is it was like a gradually developing sort of thing. And so then, you know, the pandemic would happen and then there are new things that you're not allowed to say. And then some people feel that that's tilted and a lot of the things that were misinformation turned out to be at the very least possible. And so I think not having this this flexible, ever-changing, potentially completely subjective standard for what speech is allowable um, what what could make must come out on the on the positive end here by just saying here are the standards here are the words you can't say or here are the types of speech like defamation or or direct incitement that absolutely always will be censored no matter who you are or what your viewpoints are I think that's the best possible answer but I also just want to get your take should Vine come back I honestly don't know a lot about Vine but it, it from what I understand it would have if Twitter would have held on to this property, it would have at least given him some skin into the game in the sort of Instagram versus TikTok wars. Is that is that my bad? I'm so like yeah. I don't on even this. think Instagrams. Um, it, I think it's just the TikTok versus nothing wars essentially. But um, it's funny. Twitter divested from the platform because they thought that li- like long long form live streaming was the way to go and that was what the future was and there's not an appetite for short quick content like Vine and then mm. TikTok showed up and said yeah that was completely wrong and had they held on to that I think it would have been um potentially paid dividends. I don't know though. It did kind of fizzle towards the end so I think rebooting it could be kind of fun and exciting but this is the best possible solution to the security concerns over TikTok, I think the best free market solution. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people, unless people are too allergic to the concept that Elon is behind it, I would think a lot of people would move from TikTok to an American based um, alternative like Vine. I think it's kind of an awesome idea, but it will take a while to um, revamp all the servers and, and get everything in development. So we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, my sense on this one is when it comes to Musk, there are a lot of there are a few people out there who are saying, "All right, I'm going to just get rid of my account because uh, what people perceive as a right wing figure, which is how I think some people perceive him now, given his embrace of the Republican Party, is owning this this network, and he's not doing a lot to sort of I think allay concerns on that when he tweets things like the Paul Pelosi thing." I think some people will be off of Twitter, but I think if it continues to be a good product, whether it's Twitter or Vine, et cetera, it's kind of like the Equinox phenomenon. I had all these people in New York who were like, because Stephen Ross is a a right wing figure. People were saying they were going to, you know, quit their Equinox memberships. I I don't, I don't think that great Equinox boycott did anything. And I imagine something like that would happen here. But I do wonder though, when when we talk about the future of this company, there are two great pieces that I read this morning about this. One is in the Atlantic, uh, from or two pieces. I wouldn't call either of them great, but two pieces with very different perspectives. One is in the Atlantic by Damon Bears and Charlie Wartzel, which has the very anti-Elon perspective. We'll definitely put that in the show notes, and we'll also put in the show notes this piece by Walter Kern in Common Sense. And they're both oozing with their own bias against this uh, against different versions of Twitter. When you read the Atlantic one, there's this fear of where it's going, and I think um, a lot of hyperbole based on I think speculation. When you read the Kern piece, Kern is criticizing a culture on Twitter. Like when 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 Kern is writing about the problems that Twitter has had, it's not really about the Hunter Biden thing or that, because I think most people would agree that although there was some egregious censorship on Twitter, most of the problem with Twitter was the culture itself. My, like my feeling though, if you read the current piece, it's all about like the in-group mentality on Twitter and how journalists are using Twitter to like kind of like form their views as opposed to express their views. I don't know if any of that is going to change under, there's nothing Elon can do about that. And in many ways, it's only going to, it's only going to cultivate a right wing version of that along the left wing version of that. There's like ample evidence that you have this, like this right wing culture developing on Twitter that is just as bullying and just as overconfident as the left wing one that Kern describes. Yeah. I actually have to say that I agree with Kern that, by and large, all of the fringe people on the right or even people that are just fed up with censorship on the right left Twitter in droves. And yet the blue check sort of class of journalists, that's where you have to be even like, I don't love Twitter as a platform. And even as a New York Post person, like it's basically 
for my career to be successful and to reach people, I have to be on that platform. And yet it's very tilted ideologically. And I think there's certainly a sense that as a journalist, that's where you get your news and that's where you get an understanding of what normal people are talking about and responding to. And that became more and more one-sided as these alternative platforms came along. And so I think having a journalistic class that isn't really connected to the entire spectrum of what the American people are thinking about and what they're talking about and what's trending on their platforms and what is of interest to them allows for things to fester in corners and not really get um, understood and digested by the people who, I mean, it's our job to understand what's going on, to digest it and to put it in the news for other people in a in a more short form um, kind of pre-chewed way. And I think if this Musk move then means that people from the right who felt previously alienated from this platform do come back and not and there aren't too many people on the left to then leave in a reactionary way. I think it will become more reminiscent of just the the diversity of opinion in this country. I think that's a positive thing. Um, so long as people don't move to Twitter Canada. I remember when Trump was getting elected, there's a lot of people who should be in Canada right now that aren't. Um, and I think <laughs> that the same thing will probably happen with Twitter. Ultimately, we'll kind of hopefully things will cool off a little bit and people will um, stick around and maybe some new voices will come back. Even if I don't love what they have to say, I think it's useful data. I think it's um, you know, having things trending on Gab doesn't actually touch and reach people and we lose touch with what large subsets of people think. Well, I'll, my final word on this is just I didn't love the the old Twitter. I, I do agree that there was a left wing Twitter mob and I don't love what I'm starting to see from the new Twitter in this Atlantic piece. Uh, they quote this woman, Laverne Spicer, who's a failed uh, Florida congressional candidate, who in response to somebody pointing out the misinformation that Musk was spreading, she wrote, have a seat, boy. He owns this. You're just an observer. And my sense is that that, that just like in the rest of American society and the rest of the Internet, it'll just be two sides talking past each other and creating their own enclaves. Um, I have very little hope that this is going to help improve dialogue, but hopefully I'll be proved wrong. Well, Ricky, Twitter isn't the only social media platform in the news this week. Meta had a historically bad earnings report last week. Their shares are at their lowest level since 2016, uh, and they're no longer in the top 20 of the U.S. companies by market cap. Uh, and uh, they have just hemorrhaged a historic level of cash here. They've lost over $9 billion this year so far on the Reality Labs division, which is the home of their VR hardware and virtual social media network, and essentially the metaverse. This is quite a turnaround, uh, and it led Jim Cramer on CNBC to basically near tears, uh, essentially apologize to his audience. Let's go to that clip. I had a, a belief that there was a recognition that there is a amount that you can't spend. This situation is almost a rogue situation. I had thought there would be an understanding that you just can't spend and spend right through your free cash flow. Uh, that there had to be some level of discipline. Yeah, and for those listening, he quite literally is on the verge of tears here. The tone is quite interesting, especially from the guy who's always like screaming and he's got his buzzer and he's like yelling bye, which he was, I he bugged me my entire childhood having a mother who would trade stocks from home and would listen to him. Um, I'm, I just can't get the the buzzer noises out of my head. But um, it's a, it's definitely a new tone um, in response to Facebook, which used to be the, or meta now, which used to be the um, kind of darling of the tech world. And now they're seeing not only this tunnel vision of metaverse, but also their first ever loss in um, daily active users in February, which climbed up a little bit and recovered slightly. But um, their revenue declined for a second quarter, and they only have uh, they only generated 173 million dollars of free cash flow um, in the last quarter versus 9.6 billion in the year before. Um, so it's it's really seems to be a fall from grace with um, very very long term plays happening here uh, with metaverse and there aren't legs and yet we've put billions of dollars into it and there's no short term profits only a couple hundred thousand people are using it regularly it's definitely a 
blinders on kind of approach from Zuckerberg, who seems to have taken into account the fact that Facebook's a puttering platform and that maybe this is the future. But um, I'm I'm dubious that he's the person to mm. bring us there. That's my take. Yeah, just to clarify one thing. So you're saying the 9.6 billion, it was the equivalent quarter, I think, the year before, yeah, right? the year before. So yeah. obviously a huge change. And, you know, what's what's fascinating here is it's not just meta, uh, the metaverse that's the problem here. Adver- advertising revenue fell while spending mm-hmm. on marketing and sales went up. So they're, tr- they're spending more and more to get fewer and fewer advertising dollars. So even if you were to, you know, overlook like this incredible spend on the metaverse, the company is still in trouble. I was able to try their newest headset this morning and not a great thing to do when you're trying to cover from illness. <laughs> like I actually Yeah, had this everyone's saying it made them nauseous. Did it make you nauseous? Well, as I well? was coming in, so it wasn't a great it, it certainly uh it wasn't great timing, but mm. The guys in our office are raving about it. There were some funny moments like Joe on our staff said his nose was too big for the device and too much light was seeping in, which was funny. And then uh, Ariane, <laughs> one of our other staff members, threw one of the, the handsets across the office because he didn't properly secure it in his hands. So there, there definitely are. I see. It, it, it's definitely a tactile experience. I'd say that uh, just for my personal use of it uh, this morning, it is... It, it you could see the potential for it, but the potential isn't there yet, right? In mm-hmm. in this current headset, so like the boxing Creed game is kind of cool, but it gets all glitchy and weird when the boxer is too close in you, and you kind of get confused about whether you're on the corner or not, or you know, like the the fitness um, app that I was using was like it was engaging to an extent, but very limited. Like you're basically like using lightsabers to like. I don't know if they're balloons or something, but to like hit these balloons as they fly overhead or whatever. But like after a couple of minutes Mm -hmm. of that, you just get bored. Right. So, yeah, I think it's limited. And there's also this 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 big program called Horizon Worlds, which is kind of like a Ready Player One. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like it was inspired by Ready Player One, which is like this kind of big world where you can go to different rooms and. The, like, you know, anywhere from like in a casino to a different planet or whatever. And it's meant to really take advantage of economies of scale so that if you mm-hmm. get enough users on there, you can interact with other users in different rooms, et cetera. You know, all the rooms I went to had either no people or one other person in it. Like I was in this casino and it was like, it was one other person who was running away from me in the casino. And I was like, I, I couldn't find anybody, couldn't find anything to do. So it was kind of mm-hmm. depressing. Yeah, I mean, looking at their figures for Horizon World, they wanted half a million active users by the end of this year and then revised it down to 280,000. And now they are at less than 200,000 in all actuality. Um, So I think it's definitely panning out that people do not want to spend time in this kind of world that um, Meta has concocted. I do think... Obviously, this is just the tip of the iceberg and it's going to become way, way better. I mean, it does. they still don't even have legs, right? You don't even, it's like- There's a controversy around the legs. Yeah, well, it depends on whether you mean metaphorically, whether this has legs or whether the legs- No, like literally, (laughs) do you have legs in it or are you just like a floating Uh, top hat? Yeah, apparently Zuckerberg was less than forthcoming when he was rolling out. There was some kind of big sort of, he had a a tweet where he was saying, well, we have legs or whatever, but apparently they don't really have that technology. For mass There's a, a video that came out that just turned out to be animated. Like it wasn't actually him using his metaverse legs, but they're supposedly in development. It's confusing to me why every video game character since like The Sims has had legs that work and walk. I'm not sure why that's the most difficult aspect to. Well, because it has, um, I think it has to do with just like, yeah, the, the characters have legs. But like, yeah. I think what we're saying is like, are 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 when you move your legs, is your character moving in sync? And that certainly wasn't true when I was in there. It it is to an extent. Like if you, if I take a few steps forward, the headset's going to pick up that I'm taking a few steps forward. But if I yeah. like wiggle my leg or something, it's not going to pick it up exactly the same way. But I think this yeah. taking a step back from all of this, 
I've been fairly bullish on the metaverse, so I, th maybe this is my moment to have a tear-filled Jim Cramer-esque moment here. But you know what, audience? I'm not there yet. Like, I actually think that this is... When, when we talk about the metaverse, we're not talking about meta as a company. We're talking about the movement towards more VR, AR technology. And I still continue to believe that this is uh, where we're heading because we always had in the direction of more technology, like and, and more immersive technology, whether it's social mm -hmm. media or entertainment. And this reminds me in a way of like before your time, there's always this big debate about we're going to have video telephones in the 90s. I remember always hearing this, we're going to have video telephone, et cetera. And then at a certain point, it was like, whoa, this is never going to come. We're never going to have the Jetsons like moment where we could beam in video to each other's houses, et cetera. And then all of a sudden it just happened, right? And over the past 10 years, it's ubiquitous. And so I think like something equivalent yeah. will happen with metaverse. Now it's not clear that Facebook slash meta as a company will be the ones to own this, but I think it's only a matter of time before this type of technology becomes fairly widespread. Yeah, I agree that we always trend towards technology becoming more ubiquitous, but I would say there has to be an endpoint to that, especially since technological innovation is exponential. Like it's just insane, even in my own brief lifetime, how much things have changed. And I, I could see a world where we draw a line in the sand and say, maybe this like precursor to basically uploading our consciousness into this world, or at least spending our conscious time in this false reality is a step too far for a lot of people. I, I could see this be the point if this gets too immersive, too realistic, if there are just like kind of zombie dudes living in their parents' basement that are all buff in their uh, metaverse world and and have no interest in coming out and actually facing reality, I could see this having really bad consequences personally. But I, I do believe to a responsible degree that it will become more ubiquitous. I just don't believe that people or I... I hope that people don't end up spending a huge quantity of their life in in these fictional worlds. I think that's that's potentially really sad. I, but I definitely don't think that Zuckerberg's the guy to do it. If there is a guy to do it, I think you need to have a tremendous amount of trust in order to enter into a universe basically made by a person. And I think that um, his, I mean, he basically co-opted our consciousness once with Facebook and and demonstrated how we could all become kind of advertising eyeball slaves to a social media platform. And I just don't know that people are going to be so excited to waltz in and, and give their literal like line of sight and vision and movement to this, this false reality. I don't know. To me, yeah. it's just, I think there's a, a ceiling on how, how ubiquitous this stuff can become without us becoming like matrix people. Yeah, see, I'm just more pessimistic on uh, people's human nature here. I actually think like a, a Wally-esque world where people are like strapping in headsets and just becoming immobile is possible. <laughs> but I hope yeah, not. I, I think it's possible, but uh, I think I think there's a chance that there's like a new sort of technological constitution sort of thing that comes up in the next several decades because I don't even think we can imagine the tip of the iceberg of what is to come in terms of innovation. And innovation is not always positive. I think it's um, we've kept our positive innovations and that's why we there we have our iPhones and they're super useful. But then there's also like well, very measurable consequences. That's why I put my iPhone in a, a glass box every morning you know, where I can't yeah. access it. Uh, well, just to kind of put this on the map of where we are right now, and, you know, Mark Andreessen went on Sam Harris's podcast over the summer and essentially laid out what he thinks are the sort of stages of the uh, adoption of any new technology. And let's play that clip really quickly and see if we can peg where exactly the metaverse is on this trajectory. There's basically a three-stage process to the adoption of any new technology. Stage one is just ignore, right? Where basically just people pretend it doesn't even exist. And of course, that's, you know, the internet was ignored basically mm -hmm. from the 1960s through to the, like I said, kind of even, into the, even into the early 90s. Stage two is basically vigorous protest. And that's the stage where basically it's like, a, it's like basically here are the 30 reasons this can never happen. Or, or call it the, the reasons phase, right? So here's the 30 reasons this can never happen. And usually what that is, is, is a laundry list of everything that's technically wrong with new technology. Right. So the Internet, it was it's too slow and it's not graphical and it's this and it's insecure and the hackers and, you know, fraud and, you know, all mm -hmm. this, all these sort of, you know, basically fa 
by the way, real issues, right? These are all issues that actually had to get fixed and, and then ultimately were fixed. And then he, he said stage three, stage three in the book, he says, is when the name calling begins. Mm-hmm. And so stage three is basically rage. And what he basically says is, is, is it's basically rage. It's basically the existing power structures basically just like go incandescent with rage. And, and he said the reason for that is because any new technology that works is a reordering of status and power right in, in the system. So Ricky, here, here's my sense of where we are right now. I think Mark Zuckerberg and some of the leaders at Meta think they're in stage three. I think they're thinking they're in the name calling phase mm-hmm. because there is some name calling, but I actually think they're still in the ignore phase. Cause I think, yeah, there's some mocking of it and all that, but I don't think that many people feel threatened by it quite yet. Yeah. Is my sense. Yeah. You know, being a total techno uh, pessimist is not the right side of history to always be on. And basically every single revolutionary technology, even if it was just the printing press, ends up having tremendous growing pains. But um, I would say that there's there's kind of a, a point where I, I think that these technologies are more and more consequential every time they pop up. And so it's not just always being a Luddite and saying, oh, I hate this and this has bad consequences and this could be dangerous for society. I think that um, the warnings that people have are more and more worthwhile to listen to. And we need to be more and more intentional in how we deal with these increasingly immersive technologies and increasingly intrusive technologies that are literally kind of taking over our experience of reality. So I would say it's not going to follow the same sort of cyclical pattern that more simple innovations have. This is this is a real ramped up exponential situation in my estimation. Well, it seems like at least in this latest battle, our attention spans have won out over the technology. Hopefully we'll win the greater war. But if history's any guide, this is just the beginning of this story. But this week, Ricky, uh, we sat down with reporters Ron Hansen and Stacey Barsinger from the Arizona Republic, who are following two hot races in this country right now, both in Arizona. One is the Senate race and one is the gubernatorial election. Let's jump into that interview. So Ron and Stacey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, Stacey, let's start with you. Uh, you know, those of us who don't live in Arizona have been following this gubernatorial race pretty closely. It it seems like we've got, uh, you know, a different model of a candidate in Carrie Lake. Uh, how is this race shaping up? And and is it is our impression from the outside right? Is she running a uh, to use a sort of euphemism an unconventional campaign? Oh, I mean, absolutely unconventional. Um, you know, a couple of months ago, I would have said that she was sort of taking a page out of Donald Trump's playbook. And I think that's still true. You know, she really appeals to voters. Um, she is currently on a tour of uh, uh, Ask Me Anythings um, that she is calling job interviews. Um, she is really appealing to, you know, your typical Arizonan um, and asking them for their votes Um, But I think she's also put her own spin on um, this very sort of populist style campaign in that she, um, you know, for 30 years worked in television news. She was a news anchor at the Fox affiliate here in Phoenix. And I think because of that, we have seen her just with this incredible charisma that really helps her speak to voters in a way that... um, I, I mean, I haven't seen another candidate do it. And we've seen her really like, really just take off in terms of popularity here in Arizona. And give us a sense of what her views are. So I think a lot of people are painting her from the outside as like this, you know, modernized version of Trump. Uh, and I think obviously like an issue that looms large is the 2020 election results and what that could mean for how the governor in her case, her, if she were to be elected, would handle future elections. So maybe let's start there. Like she's running against Katie Hobbs, who's the secretary of state, who obviously has a huge role in electioneering in the state. How do those two candidates view the 2020 results and what are they promising about how they'll handle future elections? Yeah, well, they are, I mean, they are worlds apart. Um, Carrie Lake, as you mentioned, um, is somewhat Trump-like. She won his endorsement. She has said the 2020 election was shady, shoddy, corrupt, stolen. Um, And, 
when it comes to, you know, looking forward, um, she has refused to say if she would concede if she loses in just a few days on November 8th. Um, Opposite of her, you have, as you said, Katie Hobbs, who is the state's chief elections official. She really rose to prominence in defending Arizona's votes um, that went to Joe Biden in 2020 um, and that Biden won this state. She has proposed some reforms um, for how elections go. She wants to make it easier to vote, but she also has said decisively that if she loses, she will accept it. She will concede um, and move on, really sort of following the rules, I suppose, on elections um, more so than we've seen Carrie, who is just unwilling to, um, you know, even entertain the idea that that a loss is possible and she might have to concede. Well, you know, this this whole issue is exhausting to a lot of us. But I think just to go over it, what what is the claim of a stolen election in Arizona and what does the evidence tell us? Um, I mean, there's there's so there's so many claims. Um, it's it's just that that Trump won this state and that is just not true. Um, you know, your listeners might have heard of the um, Arizona ballot review, the so-called audit uh, that our state uh, spent millions of dollars to do to kind of go over the results of 2020. And that just further proved that Biden won this state. Um, we've seen uh, Carrie Lake continue to make some claims about you know, like late arriving ballots and chain of custody um, problems. And they are just, she is just overstating them for what the evidence actually shows. Um, and these claims have been widely debunked, but they continue to be sort of part of her campaign strategy. And I think we'll see really where Arizonans are at with these false claims in a few days. And what's your sense about whether it's breaking through or not to voters, like meaning either the conspiracizing like around the election, if that's even a word, like whether <laughs> voters are motivated, whether voters are motivated to come out because they think the election is stolen, which is kind of a weird posture because if you think it's stolen, you might not trust the elections or uh, the, whether people who are on the other side, are, you know, like the kind of swing voters are turned off by any of that rhetoric or whether there are other issues in this race that are resonating more. Like, what's your sense of what you're hearing on the ground? Well, I think I think the election related stuff certainly uh, speaks to the Republican base. Right. Like we know there are voters that that think or wish perhaps Donald Trump was still in office. So I think Kerry Lake's claims definitely speak to those people. But in Arizona, you know, a third of our voters are independents, not affiliated with a major party. And we know from polling that they are really kind of, for the most part, turned off by these false claims. Um, and so we are we're kind of waiting to see how they break. Now, Katie Hobbs, the Democratic candidate, has really tried to speak to those voters by painting her campaign as the choice between sanity her side and chaos, Carrie Lake's side, right? Um, just trying to portray that because of all the things that Carrie Lake has said about the 2020 election and her refusal to kind of go on the record about future elections, that she would be a dangerous choice for Arizona. Got it. And on the the uh, Katie Hobbs front, she refused to debate Carrie Lake from what I understand. And I think her argument was something along the lines of not wanting to platform the views of Carrie Lake, I think for those of us who are observing from the outside is I found it a very risky move uh, on her part to, you know, kind of hand over that talking point and to, 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 I think, at least run the risk of giving voters the perception that she was evading head to head debate on the issues. Is it like, how are voters viewing that? Yeah, it, it was a very interesting decision. And the way this all kind of went down was it, became like a four week long story, which I have to think from a strategy standpoint is not great. Um, you know, certainly Carrie Lake has not let this go as an issue. Um, she has really tried to paint Katie Hobbs as weak. She frequently calls her a coward for not doing this debate. Um, Hobbs's take has been, you know, how do you argue with someone that believes in things that are not true, that believes these false elections, cla false election claims? You know, what's the point? Um, 
And I, I have talked to voters who are sort of all over the place on this, just to be honest. Um, some people really wish that she would have done the debate. They thought she could have done a great job standing up to Carrie Lake and um, think it looks bad that she opted not to do that. Um, you know, those are the people they want to see their candidates standing up in the face of a challenge and see how they would perform. Um, I've also talked to a lot of people that don't really seem to care. Uh, they kind of question the value of debates generally if it's just sort of, you know, shouting back and forth and the 30 second clip at the end that goes viral on YouTube or whatever. Um, and so um, there's been a lot of discussion of that. And I and Carrie Lake is certainly trying to make it an issue that wins. But, um, you know, there's so much going on um, in Arizona and across the country right now with inflation, the economy. We have a lot of border issues that are constantly discussed here um, and certainly will play in this election. So um, I'm not really sure that this this turns out to be a top issue, although I'm sure it does matter for some people that she has not participated in the debate. And so as as we round the bend on this election, it seems, at least from looking at the polling data, that this race is kind of flipped over the past few weeks or past few months from one that was favored, at least if you look at the 538 model, it was favoring um, Hobbs and now it's favoring Lake. What's your sense of you know, whether those polls reflect what you're seeing and what issues, obviously we talked a lot about elections, but as you're saying, there's a lot else, you know, that voters are care about and may even care about more if we look at some of, you know, the national polls looking at how people look at the issues. If you were to pick one or two issues that you're hearing a lot on the ground, what would those issues be? Um, I mean, certainly the economy, um, inflation is obviously a problem everywhere, but especially in Phoenix, um, you know, gas prices are not what they were, but they're still up um, and people are really feeling that. Uh, you also have a lot of voters who are concerned about the abortion issue. This has um, lingered in Arizona's news cycle, even since the overturning of Roe versus Wade in June. We've been sort of back and forth on what our abortion law is because we have two on the books. Um, and so it's created a lot of uncertainty and especially with swing voters, this is something that they care about. And I think that they will um, could potentially make up their minds in this election when you have, um, you know, candidates like Carrie Lake who support or have said they support pretty much a ban on almost all abortion. And then Katie Hobbs, who's on the opposite end where she doesn't she won't commit to any restrictions on the procedure at all. So um, I think that is one of the many things that voters will be looking at this November. Well, let's turn to the U.S. Senate race. Ron, this race seems like it's been tightening, too, um, between the incumbent Senator Kelly and Blake Masters. Uh, when you look at ads, closing pitches on the campaign trail, et cetera, what are those two candidates talking about? You know, when you talk to Republicans, I think it's what Stacey alluded to earlier. It's very much about things like the economy and inflation. They want the conversation hovering over those things. This is uh, seen as a sense of um, sort of ratifying the Biden agenda or a referendum on making changes to that. And they have painted Senator Kelly as someone who has enabled the Biden agenda moving forward. And so one of the the more popular signs you see around Phoenix, for example, is noting that uh, Mark Kelly votes with Joe Biden 94% of the time. For the Democrats, it's really been uh, a, a number of different issues that all have the theme of Blake Masters, the Republican, being just too extreme and, and too risky for Arizona. So they talk about things like abortion, that he has described the procedure as a demonic and that he has been supportive of other ideas that are just out of uh, step with Arizonans popular sentiments and doesn't reflect any of the centrism that Mark Kelly as a brand tries to embody this idea that he is an independent who is sort of looking out for the state's best interests rather than any party line right down the line. It's something that um, they have tried to make sure that they don't allow the border and immigration to be a defining issue for him. They've had at least some success with that. 
noting that Mark Kelly has uh, criticized and resisted the Biden agenda on handling um, some of the health-related border crossings, for example. But it's really been a case, as much as anything else, about trying to portray Blake Masters as someone who would be a dangerous departure from the centrism that Arizonans seem to want. That is the Democratic closing case. And and you both can chime in on this one. Resources. What are what are what is the sort of resource parity or asymmetries in these two races, the imbalances, and how are people spending their money? Uh, and you know, both like from what you can gather of outside groups and direct spending. Like, are is it like here in New York when I turn on? You know, I was watching the Bills game yesterday here in New York, and it was one ad after another, with one candidate after another, and it was crime, tons of crime ads. Like, what is your sense of? where the money's going, who has the most money, and what kind of messages they're putting on TV or elsewhere. Well, I can start with the Senate race. Mark Kelly is one of the best financed uh, incumbents running in 2022. He has had uh, unbelievable campaign resources for his candidacy and has also seen a good deal of Democratic-affiliated uh, independent expenditures lining up around his campaign as well, trying to help him out on that. Blake Masters really has not had a, much by way of campaign uh, resources directly. He benefited during the Republican primary from uh, about $15 million from his mentor, former employer, uh, billionaire Peter Thiel, who helped stand up the uh, Masters campaign in some ways when he was really an unknown quantity here in Arizona. In the general election, after he clinched the the primary nomination, it's really been a case of Masters sort of struggling for campaign funds. He can't even begin to compete with Kelly on that front. But there have been a number of Republican groups that have been supportive of him, notably things like the Heritage Foundation uh, through their politically active arm and uh, some other groups um, affiliated with Peter Thiel and, and others who have tried to make that more competitive. But Mark Kelly has really sort of dominated the, the airwaves on, on Arizona's commercials as it relates to the Senate race. And what we've seen is that in lieu of that, Blake Masters has really sort of held on very tightly to the Cary Lake brand and has been just sort of following her around the state in recent weeks all the time. And do you have any sense of ground game? Like either side is stronger on turnout, voter identification, et cetera. So I think both parties have done a lot in recent cycles to build up their ground game. It was always a better operation for Republicans here in Arizona, just because for many years they just dominated the state's politics. So they continue to have that. They have a very uh, uh, important reliance on a voter database that they think is really identified their best prospects and also helps them zero in on the ones that are going to need the most encouragement. But they think that they really have the kind of presence they want. They've notably beefed up their outreach to uh, Latino voters. And this was a voter block that Donald Trump did surprisingly better with in 2020 than what a lot of folks might have expected. And so they have tried to make inroads on that front as well. They have uh, a decent amount of cash resources and a very um, unified Republican Party um, and the volunteers that go with that to help make their case to voters. Democrats, you know, they've had sort of this different approach for a while now that the campaigns are kind of on their own, but, you know, they have worked together. They have a coordinated campaign between Kelly and Hobbs um, right now. I don't think it's as mature an operation as what the Republicans have, but it does have some resources behind it. And it has um, sort of the uh, implied urgency of a lot of Democratic volunteers who understand that the state is going to be close. If Democrats succeed, they will have won by fairly narrow margins. And if they don't succeed, they know it could go really badly. So I think that they have a lot of people who have volunteered to help kind of make the the case all across the, the state. Yeah. And Stacey, over to you on, on the resource question there. I, I'm vaguely aware that 
Lake is not spending, at least is the perception, is not spending money on traditional advertising in the ways that campaigns have in the past, but is is more digital first. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that is right. And, um, you know, it's it's been sort of interesting to follow. If you look at the run up to the general election, Katie Hobbs outraised Carrie Lake by a couple million bucks. I think it was about two million dollars. Um, but she's also had to spend more of that on advertising, um, traditional advertising, you know, radio, TV to get her message out there. Um, Carrie Lake, meanwhile, is she is doing some advertising but she's really banking on these events that she's having around the state, um, speaking to voters and then, um, you know, whatever headlines she can generate with her, you know, constant social media presence, um, things along those lines. Stacey, this could be a crude comparison, but this does have an odd resemblance to 2016 in the sense that I remember back then a lot of people were, looking at the Clinton campaign with all the money and the traditional sort of turnout operation and, and advertising. And it really it really resembled a, a professionalized campaign. And they were comparing it to the Trump campaign, which was very reliant on rallies and digital messaging and all that. And the Trump campaign appeared outwardly to, you know, to a lot of us like political operatives as a mess and how, you know, it was a joke. And then looking back, you're like, well, it's not it's not total causation, but something they were doing was working. And do you get the sense that Lake is just playing the best cards that she's got here when she, you know, decides to forego the traditional campaigning? Yeah. I mean, yes, but, but it is absolutely working. Um, as you noted, you know, we're seeing her take a lead in polls. Um, it, it seems like she has the momentum here and she has found the style that works for her. And maybe it is a little bit like Trump in 2016, but she's refined it and put her own brand on it. And um, it, it appears to be paying off. And so I know that you're not uh, both in the odds business here, but I'm going to ask each of you to give me the best, and you could be as vague as you, you want to be on this, but uh, for each of these races... You know, what's your if you, maybe I'll give you probabilities if you're willing to go there, like what wh- how you would handicap each of these races? Um, so if I had to uh, say at the moment, it feels like it's it's maybe a 50 50 deal. It has gotten that close. The reality is that Republicans will have a decided turnout advantage, uh, maybe on the order of about eight percentage points over Democratic voters. Uh, Mark Kelly will do well with independents. He will likely win with that segment but you start doing the math he really has to win big with that with that segment to be able to overcome the republican deficit that he is likely to face there so uh if you think carrie lake is doing well and that's what we're seeing in all the polling then you have to presume that that's a big big mountain for mark kelly to overcome he has the resources to maybe do it but it's really really hard so, Ron, it's interesting that you, you should say that because it almost seems like the two gravitational forces here are Kelly and Lake, right? They're, they're, they're Hobbs and Masters are almost bystanders, it feels like. I know those are not your words, but that's what it feels like uh, in what you're describing. It's like, can, can Kelly's pull with independence pull Hobbs over the finish line and himself obviously is a question and then can Lake's appeal to the base turn out enough voters to pull Masters over the finish line is that is that a fair way of looking at it's it it's not a bad way of thinking of it um i think Carrie Lake is a remarkable brand unto herself and her conversation much like Blake Masters is seems like it's pointed squarely at republicans and the democratic messaging from mark kelly anyway from the start has always been pointed at the independents and it, it's really been trying to appeal to uh those who are seen as as more measured perhaps in in their politics and you know they are doing their best to turn out democrats in their base but it's always been a message in mark kelly's case that has been directed chiefly at the independents and it's it's really a stylistic 
difference that um, is quite notable. These campaigns could not be more opposite. Well, Stacey, uh, what's your what's your handicap of the gubernatorial race at this point? Uh, I was hoping you would forget to ask me because it's so hard to it's so hard <laughs> know, to say. I know you guys hate to answer <laughs> questions like this. It just it's just <laughs> so hard to say. I mean, you know, most of the polling is within the margin of error, save for one that had Lake ahead by a significant amount. Um, I think as Ron has discussed, it it really is gonna come down to who can get their voters to the polls, who can get them to um, send back their ballots. And we will see where those independents fall. Certainly, Katie Hobbs is speaking more to that that group of voters. Um, but as we mentioned, there's just so much else going on in this race that it'll be really interesting to see where those voters land. Well, on that, Ron and Stacy, thank you so much. Uh, thank you for everything you do. We're big fans of all the reporting you do and, and local reporting generally. Uh, I don't know where we'd be without you. And uh, we'll, we'll point our listeners over to the Arizona Republic. Uh, are there, you know, any um, Twitter handles or anything else that you want to point them to if they want to follow you and the work that you're doing? Sure. Um, you can follow me at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. Yeah. And I am on Twitter at S. Barchinger. It's S-B as in boy, A-R-C-H-E-N-G-E-R. Well, thank you so much and, and stay safe out there. I know the polls are getting hot out there from what we see. People are getting feisty, I guess, to use a, uh, a <laughs> to understate things a little bit. So stay safe out there. Keep reporting and we'll keep uh, on the lookout. And hopefully it'll be an earlier night uh, than some of these past elections for you. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Yeah, and Ricky, the, this race couldn't be any tighter. Fox News just had a poll this morning that had Kelly up one against Masters in the Senate race and Lake up one against Hobbs in the gubernatorial election, obviously both within the margin of errors. This could go either way. Like, you know, this could either be Republicans picking up both or Democrats gaining both or splits. Mm -hmm. Honestly, like when you ask the reporters, they obviously handicapped it. It seems like they're it seems like right now you ask most people, they feel like all things being equal, that Kelly ekes it out and Lake wins. But I, I'm not sure at this point. And the polling has been so unreliable in these states. And so we'll we'll find out in due time. We will know in quite short order, it seems. Yeah. And one last thing before we wrap up today, um, we have been getting those voicemails. So just another reminder to give us a call. And here's one that we wanted to um, listen to and respond to. Hey, this is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. I did want to share a minor correction um, to episode 90. On that episode, Ricky defined cognitive behavioral therapy uh, or CBT as exposure therapy. Um, in fact, CBT is much more than that. Um, CBT helps people change unhelpful patterns in their thinking and behavior. And so to the extent that exposure is one way of achieving that, yes, exposure therapy is a kind of CBT, but CBT involves many more different types of strategies than just exposure. Well, hey, Emily, thank you so much for reaching out. We appreciate your insight, and we're always trying to work on being as specific and careful as we can to avoid instances like this. So thanks again. Also, shout out to Ian, who left us a voicemail uh, saying he went back and listened to every single episode of this podcast. I want to thank him for that. And Ian, send us some notes. I'm sure I've contradicted myself many times <laughs> over the course of this podcast, and I'm just curious to know how and when and and where I've done that. That is impressive. Uh, Every episode. Wow. I think that's all we have. We'll be back tomorrow, uh, given that this is a special Wednesday edition and we've got a lot more in store. We're also going to zero in on another battleground state, uh, Nevada, tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're also going to cover a couple other stories that are overlooked in the media this week. And so we'll be right back here tomorrow. See you then. 